Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. I am going to continue with a series that we started. I've just, I prayed and I asked God about it and I just really felt led to just continue doing what we're doing. So if you guys, if you want to put up the graphic when you get a chance, that would be fantastic. Um, for the past several weeks, we've been doing a series on signs of a healthy church. Um, so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and hold that and then I'm going to start out in Acts chapter 2. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach for three hours, I don't think. Um, I'm just going to reveal the first sign. So when we started this series, I think it's beneficial to kind of just recap where we've been. You know, intentional redundancy or repetition. I don't know if practice makes perfect, but practice makes permanent. And so repetition helps commit things to memory. And so I just want to kind of take a minute to just go over where we've been up to this point. You know, the first week we started the series, we identified and defined what a church was. We even went so far as to define what a sign is. You know, that a sign communicates a message of something that's not immediately perceivable at that moment in time. You know, like you're five miles away from Cleveland. You may not be able to see Cleveland, but the sign tells you where it's at. You know, a church we identified as being a diverse yet unified assembly of believers that have submitted or surrendered their life to the Lord Jesus. And in our day and time, defining terms has become ridiculously necessary, almost to a foolish extent. So I didn't want to let there be any opportunity for any miscommunication or misconstruement of what I'm trying to say. So when we're talking about signs of a healthy church. We're talking about something that you can tangibly perceive that will tell you that this assembly of believers is healthy, meaning not sick. Because throughout history, we've talked about this. It's like the church goes through this roller coaster ride. It goes through these seasons where we're healthy and we're in awakening and communities are being changed and the moral climate is in favor of God's standard and that things are just booming and great and awesome. And the next thing you know, it's like we are surrounded by immorality and sin and the church is doing absolutely nothing about it. And oftentimes the church looks just like everybody else and there is absolutely no sanctification or no holiness or no standard of righteousness in the church or in the community. And then boom, another awakening comes and we go back up to the sphere of righteousness and this awakening and health and then we plummet right back down. And that has been the cycle of the church ever since its inception at Pentecost. I don't want to live like that. I want to have an ever-increasing glory like Paul promises the Corinthian church that's available from glory to glory or an ever-increasing glory. I want to be a healthy church that just continues to go into greater depths or greater heights of health in Christ Jesus. And I think it's possible. And so what we began to do is we began to build like this metaphorical house. You know, the church is God's house, so we began to build this metaphorical house. And we laid the foundation in the fear of God. Because the fear, the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if that we don't have the fear of the Lord, we cannot have understanding. We cannot have knowledge. And without a firm foundation, the building will collapse in on itself. Paul tells us in the New Testament in several locations, but most prominently in 1 Corinthians 3, that no other foundation can any man lay but that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
And so where's I said the foundation is the fear of the Lord. Paul says it's Jesus Christ. There's not a disconnect because if you really get to know who Jesus is, you begin to realize that Jesus Christ is the fear of the Lord. We think of him, Jesus, meek and mild, merciful and tender, and all these Renaissance artists that paint him looking like a woman. That's not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that comes back with fire in his eyes and that is so fearful and so terrible that John fell at his feet as dead and that the people in the world at his return say, let the mountains fall upon us just to save us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ. And we've kind of got it distorted or twisted a little bit. Because we think of him in his humanity and we think of him in his sacrifice and we mistake his meekness and his sacrifice for weakness. And that is not who Jesus is. Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus is almighty. Jesus is God in flesh. That's the foundation of the church. And then last week we began to put the roof on our metaphorical building and we established the vision of this church. And the only reason I did the roof before I did the walls was because I got so excited because God gave me the vision for the church the night before. And so I just rearranged everything to, so that I could preach the vision. <laughs> the, the vision for this church, if you haven't heard it yet, is Hello Cleveland, meet Jesus. Hello Cleveland, meet Jesus. And the reason that the vision is the roof is because without a vision, anything or without a roof, anything it wants can get into your house. Anything, rain, sunshine, bugs, whatever, anything can get in. And the vision kind of covers everything in the church under one umbrella. And the reason that I wanted it to be Hello Cleveland, Meet Jesus, or the reason I believe God gave that is because, number one, we need to get to know the community that we're a part of. We don't need to just be our little isolated cult or sect or group separate from the world and every every meaning of the term yes we are supposed to be holy and we are called to be separate but that doesn't mean that we are called to be a different group or entity entirely and have no communication how in the world can we get people out of the world if we never have any association with the world we have to get to know the community that we're a part of in cleveland we have a multiplicity of churches we are one of the most religious areas in the entire world and we have gotten to this point to where we think that it's okay to just have church Go to Walmart, never talk to anybody. Go to the, a festival, never talk to anybody. And go about our lives and go to church and that there's no missional responsibility on us. And that's not what Scripture and particularly the New Testament teaches. It teaches that we are supposed to go into the world and be in it but not of it and that we are supposed to be light shining in the darkness. And we kind of have lost that aspect of the church. We've kind of just said, I'm going to put all of my light over here and let the rest of the area be dark. That's not what Jesus said. He said, you don't put it under a bushel, but that's exactly what we've done. You don't light a candle and then put it under a basket so that the basket's light, but everything else is dark. But that's exactly what we've done in the church. And it's time to take the light out of the basket and let the whole world see the light of Jesus. And I'm not talking about introducing them to a church service. I'm not in talking about you saying, hey, I've got this cool pastor that offends everybody all the time. You should come hear him. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you need to share and introduce people to Jesus. And then if they decide to come to this church, fantastic. If they decide to go to the church next door, fantastic. The one down the street, the one in Ottawa, I don't care. All I care about is you introducing people to Jesus. There is a news flash. The church was not made for the unbeliever. The church was made for the believer. 
And the believer was made for the unbeliever. And we've kind of got it twisted. We think the church is made for the unbeliever. So come and see, come and see, come and see. And it's like, yes, we are welcoming anybody that wants to come. But really and truthfully, we should be just as equally going and finding. And there's been this huge debate in the church. Like, do we want to be an attractional church and just be all about Sunday morning and make our services great and invite people to come, 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 come? Or do we want to be a missional church and like do away with Sunday mornings and have little community groups and then just say, go, 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 go. And I'm like, why does that have to be mutually exclusive? Why can't we be both? Why can't we be, and I made up this word, missio attractional? Why can't we be missional and attractional at the same time? (laughs) I like making up words. (laughs) But why can't we be both at the same time? Why can't we be missional and attractional? Why can't we give God our best on Sunday to celebrate His resurrection and have the greatest time that we can possibly have with the best preaching and the best music? You might have to find somebody else to preach to have the best preaching. But the best preaching and the best music and the best sanctuary and just go all out to give Jesus the best service that we can possibly give Him. And then at the same time, six other days of the week, go and be as missional as we can possibly be. Why can't we be both? Because I actually believe that that's the template of the New Testament is to be both. And that's the vision. That's the roof. That's the umbrella. The Great Commission isn't just go and find. It's come and see and go and find. But we like to leave the Great Commission promise off. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Therefore, go. But then as he says, therefore, go, he ends up adding some stuff to that. He says, go and make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey whatsoever I commanded you, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the age. That whole section following the go and make disciples is talking about congregating together. It's both. It's missional and attractional, and that's the vision of this church is I want to be both. Hello, Cleveland, meet Jesus. And so that got us to where we're at today. We haven't even got to the first sign. We're three weeks into a series and we haven't even got to the first sign of a healthy church. That's all prerequisites to before we can even begin the conversation of what the signs are. We're just defining what church is up to this point. But today I would like to actually show you kind of the blueprint of what we're going to be doing. Because if we're building a house, you kind of need a blueprint. I'm going to show you the blueprint of this series and then we're going to get into the first sign. So if you have your Bibles and you're in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're just going to read one verse. If you want the whole blueprint, it's verses 42 through 47. That's the blueprint for a healthy church. I don't think there's a better one in all of Scripture. 42 through 47, but we're just going to read verse 42, and then we're going to jump to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 42 reads this way. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So the very first sign of a healthy church, if you're taking notes, is devotion to the apostles' teaching. You can flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. Now, before we can even get into this, I need you to understand a couple of things. First of all, the apostles' teaching really just means the Word of God. Peter, in his epistle, takes Paul's teaching and puts it on equal playing field with Scripture, with the Old Testament. So the church, the first church, didn't have the Bible as we have it right now. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have all of the epistles. They didn't have John and they didn't have Revelation, but they had the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of the apostles and the 39 books that make up our Old Testament were what they constituted as scripture. 
And what we have is the apostles' teaching that was already written at this time and then what was written shortly thereafter and universally accepted by the church with the 39 books of the Old Testament put together in one nice little book bound in goatskin leather and put before us. At least mine's in goatskin leather. I have a little bit of an obsession with Bibles. But (laughs) a little obsession with Bibles. But they had the Word of God and they were devoted to it. They were devoted to it. But here's something I, I don't think that we get a good understanding of. We, I don't really think that we really understand what devotion to the Word of God is. And I'm just saying that because before I let God begin to speak this message into my heart, I really wasn't understanding what devotion was what devotion to the Word of God was. If you'd have asked me this three weeks ago, I would have told you, well, it's reading your Bible every day. That's true, that's a part of it, but that's not devotion to the Word of God. There are people that read their Bible every single day that can study it that don't even believe in it. I know people that teach religions of the world or humanities and have read the Bible more than most Christians and they don't even believe a word that it says. I know people, I've worked in prisons and I've visited people in prisons and I know inmates that read the Bible every single day and they don't practice a lick of what it says. Because that would be your next response. Okay, if it's devotion to the Word of God is not reading the Bible every day or hearing the Word, then we're going to go on James's line of thinking and say, well, it's doing the Word. Yes, that's a part of it, but that's still not devotion to the Word of God. That's an aspect of it. It's certainly not less than reading and doing the Word, but it's actually so much more than that. Reading the Word of God is not devotion to it. Doing the Word of God is not devotion to it. There are people that take this Word of God and they do certain aspects of it, but they don't. They're not devoted to it. I'm going to share a little bit of a personal story with you guys. So I never met him, but... My great-grandfather was a deacon in a church. And from what I have heard, he was very familiar with the Bible. He was very involved with the church. But he was the meanest man that you would ever meet. If you were a church member, he was great. But he was ridiculously mean to his family. And from what I've heard... My grandfather struggled with church his entire life because of the way his father acted. His father was in the church. His father knew the Word of God. His father went to all the meetings and unlocked the door and was there every time the church was open and did all of these things, but treated him terribly, so there must not be any truth to it. Devotion to the Word of God goes beyond just doing some of the things in the Word. It goes beyond just knowing some of the Word. It goes beyond just reading the Word. Listen, you guys may be surprised to hear this, but do you want to know how the Nazi party, the German Socialist Party, gained so much power? It's because they contorted and twisted the national church and used Scripture to support and back their anti-Semitism values. They turned Jesus into a German and an anti-Jew. Who was a Jew? They turned him into an anti-Jew and they used the Word of God to do it. And they used a lot of 
famous figures from church history like Martin Luther and some of his writings to further back their claim. They use the church to rise to power and to keep that power. They knew the word of God. They read the word of God. They did some of the things in the word of God, but they twisted it because they weren't devoted to it. So the question is, is what is devotion to the word of God? And I'm going to give you the answer and then I'm going to prove it. Devotion to the word of God is love for the word of God. It's love. Let's read a little bit. Second Timothy chapter three, we're going to start in verse one and we're just it's only a few verses. We're just going to read the chapter. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and John Brez opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, patience, faith, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in christ jesus all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and let's just grab a couple verses because he didn't finish the thought there in chapter four he says in the presence of god and of christ jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom i give you this charge Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and aside to miss. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. So devotion to the truth or devotion to the word of God is a love for the truth, for itself, for the sake of itself. This passage, he says, he tells Timothy in this whole conversation, this is the second letter. This is the final letter that he wrote. This is like him capitulating and summing up everything that he wanted to uh, commute to his disciple right before he dies. That's that's where this letter fits in is like Paul's farewell address to Timothy. Like, I'm done. I'm dying. I'm gone. The end of my road has come. Here's the last message that I want to commute to you. And this is what he says. He says, terrible times are coming. Bad times are coming. And then he begins to describe them. And if you take those verses and you apply them to our society today, I don't think you could have a better uh, description of American culture. People are boastful. They're disobedient to parents. They love themselves. (laughs) They're proud. 
They don't love God. They love pleasure. I mean, the list goes on. Like, that's a perfect description of the culture and the society in which we live today. Everything revolves around me, and everybody else is just supporting actors in the production of my life. That's a description of society as it is today. He says, terrible times are coming. And when he begins to list this off, you know, I... I have to confess, when I get into Scripture and I'm reading personal, personally, when I get to lists like this, my, the pace of my reading picks up a little bit. Does anybody else do that? You're reading through all these details and then you get to a list and they're listing things out. Does anybody else just kind of speed up a little bit? Like, I'm going to get through this list and then get back to the details? Come on. I'm not the only one that does that. You're reading like 200 words a minute and then you get to a list and suddenly you're reading 800 words a minute. You know? I, I do that, especially with genealogies. You're reading the genealogies, you know, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so, and it's like, you're reading it, you know, okay, so-and-so was king, and then you're like, <laughs> Sometimes you don't even look every line. You just kind of, where's this end at? Okay, I'll pick back up right here. <laughs> or maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. <laughs> but I actually slowed down, and I began to think about this list. And I was blown away by the third verse. Verse 3 of this list says, wait, where is it at? It says, without love. They're without love. But wait a second. He just said that they're lovers of themselves, that they're lovers of money, that they're lovers of pleasure, but verse 3 says they're without love. Like without love in general. They're just without love. So you know what that communicates? I don't even have to get into the Greek to break down the words, to know what words. You know what that communicates to me right off the cuff? Just taking it at face value. It immediately communicates to me that their love for themselves is a facade. It's a farce. It communicates to me that their love for money is a farce. It's a facade. They don't have love. Their love for pleasure, it's a facade. It's fake. It's a form of love, but it's not even love itself. And what proves this to me more than anything else is when he says, just as Jonas and Jambres, the weirdest names in all of Scripture, just as those two men, the Pharaoh's magicians, withstood Moses. So what I began to realize is that the way that I've heard that verse, you know, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, we've all heard this verse preached before. The way that I've heard that preached every time I've ever heard it was wrong. I've always heard this as like they have a form of godliness, but they can't lay hands on the sick and see them healed. They have a form of godliness, but they don't speak in tongues or they don't, you know, raise the dead or they don't cast out demons. So they're denying the power. And I've always heard it preached that way. But if you follow the context of the passage, that's not what it's saying. That's not what it's communicating at all. So what Paul is actually saying that the power of God that they're denying is love because the whole passage is about the love that they don't have. The whole passage is they don't have love. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And then he grabs the two Pharaoh's court magicians and uses them as an example because they withstood Moses. If you guys know the story of Exodus, Moses comes to deliver the children of Egypt. And what's he do? He turns his rod to a snake. What's the Pharaoh's court magicians do? They turn sticks to snakes. Moses turns water to blood. 
What's the pharaoh court magicians do? They, try to, they turn water to blood through witchcraft. And they begin mimicking the works of God. But they don't have love and they're not on God's side. They're mimicking and using fake copies of God's word and God's work to oppose the will of God. And in our society today, and especially in the American church, people are doing this right now. Right as I am preaching, there are people that are standing beside or behind the pulpit. I don't know. They may do like I do and stand beside the pulpit. They're standing in the pulpit in the space of someone leading a congregation. And they are using the word of God to directly oppose the will of God. They do this all the time. I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who will say, you know, well, I can live however I want because, you know, love is love. And I'm like, yes, it is. But how do you define love? Because according to Scripture, love is defined by the holiness of God, which qualifies and conditions every other one of his attributes. And they'll say, well, God can't exist because there's evil in the world. And so if there's evil in the world, then there can't be a good God, a good and loving God, because a good and loving God wouldn't allow evil in the world. I'm like, okay, great. How do you get the definition of evil? You get it from Scripture. How do you get the definition of good? You get it from Scripture. How do you get the definition of love or the idea that God is love? You get it from Scripture. So you're using the things that Scripture say to try to oppose Scripture. They do this all the time with numerous aspects of the Word of God. They will try to use the Word and the work of God to directly oppose the will of God. That's because they don't love the truth. They only tolerate it so much as it supports their decisions and their view on life. People will take the truth and they will hold a Bible verse up and they will flaunt it all day long so as long as it coincides with their personal preference. But the moment that it doesn't, they throw it to the wind and find another. And if the Bible ceases to support their decisions or their lifestyle, they throw the Bible out the window and they'll grab the Koran or they'll grab the teachings of Buddha or they'll grab Dr. Phil or somebody or something that will give validation and encouragement to the decisions that they're making because it's not really about any other higher plane of authority. It's just about finding something that will validate the decisions that they want to make. That's this culture that we live in. I will tolerate you so long as you encourage and validate me. The moment that you stop, I cease to tolerate you. That's a, that's a sad way to be. I mean, that's a sad condition of the culture and the society that we live in. But that's where we're at. That is where we are at. And Paul s- says, but that's not what I want for you, Timothy. Look, perilous times are coming because people aren't going to love the truth anymore. They're not going to endure sound doctrine. They're not going to tolerate teaching because preaching isn't just about standing behind a pulpit and conveying a sermon. Preaching is about one-on-one conversations. Preaching is about meeting people and showing them the love of Jesus through your actions and your behavior and the way that you react to diverse and antagonistic situations. Preaching is so much more than just standing behind a pulpit and speaking out a 45-minute sermon or 30-minute sermon or whatever it may be. Preaching is about the way that you live. And the reason, have you guys ever heard somebody get up in a pulpit and preach a gospel, and everything that they said was technically okay, like it was scripture, and it was dissecting, and it was technically okay, it was 
wasn't heretical, it was biblically accurate, but it was dry as cracker dust. It was like chewing gum and eating peanut butter at the same time. It was just awful. They, they got up and they didn't have no oil. That's because they don't live it. Preaching isn't an overflow of study for a few hours. I don't care if you spend 20 hours in your office studying for a sermon. That's not how preaching is birthed. Preaching is an overflow of a life lived in devotion to God. Listen, somebody that has a life of devotion to God can spend five minutes preparing a sermon and will have more anointing and more oil than someone who doesn't live devoted to God and spends 40 hours developing a sermon. That's the difference. It's an overflow of a life lived in devotion to God. And it's not just about a sermon. It's about a conversation. Talk to somebody who doesn't live a life devoted to God and talk to them about the Word of God and see how dry and how boring and how lifeless it is. And then talk to somebody who lives every second of their life in view of God and see the difference. The oil just oozes off. And when I say oil, I'm talking about the anointing presence of the Holy Ghost. Because they love the truth for the sake of the truth. Not because it supports and validates their life. Because one of the, minist- the things that it says, you know, all Scripture is given for correction, doctrine, reproof, training in righteousness. The Word of God cuts. And sometimes it cuts often. And if you only love the truth because it validates your opinion and the way you want to live your life, your relationship will be nothing more than a summer fling. Because it's not going to pander to you for very long. And depending on what, where you open up the Bible, it may not pander to you for a second. But I always embrace, Charles Spurgeon was once quoted as saying, whatever passage of Scripture you dislike the most is the passage of Scripture you need to make your life passage until you learn to love it. Because Scripture is not meant to pander or to patronize our feelings. Scripture is meant to change us and to transform us and to mold us into the image of Christ, to make us people that are worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But you can't do that if you don't love the truth. And because people become fake lovers of themselves and fake lovers of pleasure and fake lovers of money, they begin to gather to themselves teachers that support that. It's no wonder that Paul says hard times are going to come. You're going to have to endure hardship as a minister. And he says, Timothy, I don't want you to live like that. You know my teaching, but you also know my lifestyle. You know the way that I've lived. I haven't just said this when I was behind a pulpit or in a house church. I have lived this every day of my life. You've been with me. You've watched me. This isn't just a calling to stand up on a Sunday morning and speak a little bit. This is a calling to live your life in submission to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Wherever that takes you, good, bad, or indifferent. Whatever that God leads you into, embrace that and endure the hardship. Preach. The gospel. Don't compromise. Don't let you don't become one of those sugar-coated teachers that just pander to society's cultural demands. The word of God doesn't change. I don't care what the climate outside is. You know, if we were building our metaphorical house, the word of God is kind of like the walls. Not only does it keep things outside, but it also keeps things inside. And the wonderful thing about the wall is it could be 150 degrees outside and 70 degrees in here, just a few inches apart. 
because the walls and the insulation can make two different climates. This house is going to be a climate and the Word of God is going to set the thermostat no matter what's going on at the culture outside. Paul doesn't say, hey, when it's popular, preach the Word of God. He says, in season and out of season. He says, Timothy, I don't care. If it's spring and there's new life springing up everywhere and things are being born, new creatures are being born everywhere and it's just like life everywhere you look, keep preaching the gospel. If it's summer and the light is shining down on you and there's new events and fun, exciting things happening everywhere you look, keep preaching the gospel. Even if it's fall and things are starting to decay and the weather's turning against you and everything seems to be falling apart around you, keep preaching the gospel. And even if it's winter and there's no life or light or climate or warmth or any life anywhere, keep preaching the gospel, in season and out of season. That's what that expression means. It doesn't matter what the moral climate is. It doesn't matter what the culture's saying. It doesn't matter whether people love you, whether people hate you, whether people agree with you, whether they don't. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep preaching the truth. Don't dictate your message based on what they want to hear. Let the Word of God be your message and preach it in season and out of season. That's what it means to have a love for the truth. It means to say that I am going to hold this truth up and I am going to honor it and I am going to worship the truth because you know what? The truth is nothing more than the expression of the person of God. That's why I keep saying the truth definite article because there's only one. There is no relative truth that your truth doesn't have to be my truth. Truth is not subjective to our opinions. Truth is not subjective to our feelings or how it impacts us. Truth is truth regardless of how it makes us feel or how it affects us. There is an objective truth that is the standard that's set no matter what we feel, think, or how we act in regard or relationship to it. The truth is the truth is the truth. And it is nothing more than the expression of the person and work of God. That's what the truth is. And you're supposed to preach it no matter what. Whether people want to hear it or whether they don't. Whether you're popular or whether you're hated. And the truth of the matter is, as Paul tells Timothy, you're probably not going to be popular for long. Because the truth is offensive. And as somebody that's wielding the truth or holding the truth out, that whole expression, don't kill the messenger, That is the biggest lie that has ever been communicated because that's the first thing that they do is come after the messenger. Because guess what? You come after the messenger, the message stops. And you're holding out the truth, Timothy. They're going to come after you. All that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not some, not most, all. So what is he saying about the living godly portion? And this is what gets me. And when we look at Scripture, we have this affinity for we kind of like to use it as like a hashtag on our life. Or for some of you that may not know what a hashtag is, like a postscript on our life. Like we like to sign our letter off or our text or our tweet or our Facebook post off with a hashtag and of Scripture. But God told me a long time ago that Scripture is supposed to be the vetting and the introduction, not the hashtag. What I mean by that is we're supposed to filter our life through Scripture as a challenge, 
not as a postscript. Because a lot of people, they do whatever it is they want to do, and then they hashtag all in the name of Jesus or all things to the glory of God. And it's like that doesn't glorify God at all. That just is something that made you happy. And so you're saying do all that you do to the glory of God as like a hashtag on your life. But what about flipping it and letting it be a lens through which your life is supposed to be lived or filtered? That's what you're supposed to do with the word of God. And so when I look at this statement, it says all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And I look around and I'm like, am I suffering persecution? Because if I'm not suffering persecution, does that mean that I'm not living godly in Christ Jesus? And I think that that's something that we need to ask ourselves. Some of these questions and Paul makes these blanket general statements. I try not to make blanket general statements because I'm not Paul. But when Scripture makes a blanket statement and says everyone, every single person that lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, and then we find ourselves not suffering persecution, I ask, is it because we're not living godly in Christ Jesus? And that's, that's, that can be an indictment. Anyway, that was free. <laughs> so church, I want you to understand, if we're looking at building this metaphorical house, and the word of God is the walls, then the love of God and humility that that love produces would be the studs and the frames that the walls are hung on. Because if you tried to build a house and you tried to put drywall and no studs and no frame, drywall and then set your roof on that and then you just went your merry way, I'm not an architect or an engineer, but I don't think that that would work out to your benefit. I don't, without a support structure, the whole thing would collapse on itself. So it doesn't matter. We can be a church that has a Bible. We can be a church that has bookshelves and we hand out free Bibles. That doesn't mean we're devoted to the Word of God. We can be a church that we put Bible verses on everything that we do. That doesn't mean that we're devoted to the Word of God. We can do the benevolence ministries and do some of the things that the Word of God tells us to do, but that doesn't mean that we're devoted to the Word of God. What means that we're devoted to the Word of God is when we love the Word of God so much that we let it dictate our culture and it determine how we conduct our affairs and it be the guiding principle of everything that we do, not just when it's convenient or suits what we want to do. It's about letting the Word of God have center stage and be the central principle for everything that we do and everything revolving around it. Not everything revolving around a ministry. Everything revolving around the Word of God and it being the key filtration system through which everything flows. And the only way that that's possible is if we pray that God would give us a love for the Word of God, a hunger for it a desire for it, that the Word of God would be everything to us. And what begins to happen is when you get that love, the love of God has this wonderful, crazy ability to create this culture of humility. It's really hard to be super prideful and arrogant around people that you love. Today's Mother's Day. It's really hard if you have like a consuming love for your mother. It's hard to be arrogant around her. When you truly look through the lens of like what your mother has went through and sacrificed for you, it's really hard to have any level of arrogance around your mother. Love has this crazy ability to just create a culture of humility. And if we love the Word of God, there's going to be humility in us when we come before it. And we're going to surrender ourselves and just say, God, 
Let your word change us. Let it transform us. Let it renew us. Let it refresh us. Let it do a regenerating work in us. That's the first sign of a healthy church is that they are devoted to the word of God. They love the word of God. They are humbled before the word of God. Amen? So church, we have a choice. We can be people that do it our way, have our ministries, have our pretty signs, still preach from the Bible, still do some things out of the word, but make it about us and what we think and what we want, or we can be a church that just loves the word of God. That's our choice. I know what I want to choose. I feel like Joshua in this. But as for me in my house, no. I want to be a person that just loves the word of God with everything that I have. Amen?